Join us today as we hear about an unexpected journey. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard, to not be satisfied with just a little religion in our lives instead of God's best. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. We continue our extended series about Jim Elliott, Operation Alka, and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. From March of 1989, we'll hear an entrance to Alka territory and Program 122 to Stone Age Women. Joining us, author Barbara Riach on the Alka response to Elizabeth staying and sharing the gospel. Some thoughts about trust. Coming up, it's Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, as she talks about danger in the jungle and yet a fun childhood in Ecuador. First, though, an entrance to Alka territory. There are thoughts that the Alkas might attack. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about an entrance to Alka territory. I began the story in my last talk telling you how I had received an invitation to go to Arahuno to stay with a missionary woman. And while there, two Quechua men arrived to tell me that there were two Alka women at their house. After a six-hour walk with these two men, there I was face-to-face with these Alka women. We were staying in a Quechua house made of bamboo and thatched roof. There were lots of flies. Everybody was very edgy. The dogs were barking every now and then in such a way as to make the Indians extremely nervous. They felt sure that the Alkas were surrounding us, sneaking up on us, and might suddenly attack us. At night, they would hear twigs break in the forest, and everyone would jump to their feet with guns at the ready. Even in the daytime, when the women went out to plant their manioc, they said they found twigs of manioc broken, which they themselves had not broken. They felt sure that the Alcas had been through their plantations. Dr. Tidmarsh arrived the following afternoon with his tape recorder, and as he held the microphone toward Mangamo, one of the two Alka women, she began to talk as if she had some idea what it was. Obviously, she could not possibly have ever seen any such thing. But we were really amazed at their calm, cool way of taking everything that was happening. On the third day, the missionary aviation plane flew over with a phone drop. Nate Saint had invented an ingenious method of lowering a bucket from the plane as the plane circled, and so this pilot was circling the plane overhead. He dropped a phone in the bucket, and we were able to communicate with him. He was asking what was happening, were things all right, was everything going well, and even this seemed to be no surprise to these two Alka women. Mankamo began talking excitedly, but as far as I could tell, she was not talking about anything to do with the airplane or the telephone. She would point off into the jungle every now and then, and I thought, I wonder if she's trying to tell us that we better get out of here. I wonder if she's telling us that her people might attack us. But there was no way of knowing. The next day happened to be a feast day for the Quechua Indians, and so they put on feathers and paint. Normally, the Quechuas wear blue jeans and T-shirts. The women wear 
navy blue skirts made of something like denim and checkered blouses. But on this particular day, everybody wanted to get very dressed up, so they put on feathers and paint, and they chanted, and they sang, and they danced, and they played their drums, and they drank chicha. And they gave chicha, which is a fairly mildly intoxicating drink, to the two Alka women, who promptly got sick. Apparently, they had never had anything intoxicating before. They wanted to paint their faces, too, and put feathers on them. And the two women took it very calmly and good-naturedly. By this time, I had decided that probably the best thing for me to do was to stay with these two Alka women, not knowing why they had come or whether they wanted to go any further or what to do. I thought probably I should just maintain the position that we had there. But my little daughter was back in Atahuno, and I needed more things than I had with me. And so I returned to Atahuno and back to my station in Shandia to pack up to go and spend an indefinite period of time in the Oglan. I reviewed the steps that had led to what appeared to be an opening into the Alka tribe. It was the opening that I'd prayed for. I had no idea how it could happen, but here God had done an impossible thing and made two women, not men, come out just when I was within reach and had enabled me to meet them and gain a measure of their confidence. The words of Psalm 118 were help to me as I contemplated what this move was likely to mean. These are the words. I do not fear what man can do unto me. The Lord is on my side to help me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. The Lord is my strength and song. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous enter through it. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Thou art my God, and I will give thanks to thee. I had known a very few times in my life when I had not one single prop to lean on, no hint of which course to take, no one from whom to ask advice. But this was one of those times. And in answer to prayer, these words that had been written so long ago under such different conditions came to me with an unshakable assurance that I had to believe they were written for me. They were the voice of God. So I acted on them. And I went back to Atahuno with my daughter Valerie, and from Atahuno again over that long trail that I described in my last talk, with Fermin, a Quechua guide. He carried Valerie in a little wooden chair on his back. It was pouring rain most of the time. He was a good sport. Valerie was a good sport. It took us eight and a half hours, but we got there. We slept in the Quechua Indian house, and the two Alka women were still there waiting for us. The next morning, Mintaka and Mankamo, the two Alka women, my daughter Valerie and I, were in the river bathing, a cool, clear, warm jungle river, we suddenly heard a scream. A woman came running up from downriver and yelled, Aukauna Wanchinaushka, the Aukas have killed somebody. Honorio is dead. Honorio was one of the Quechua men who had just gone by us as we were bathing. He was in his canoe with his wife and his dog. He had not gone by more than ten minutes earlier when we heard the scream, Honorio is dead, get out of the river. We got out of the river, 
the two Alka women talking and yelling and saying things that we couldn't understand a word of, but they too came with us to the house, and in short order they brought the body of Honorio up to the house. There had been 18 spears in him. One of the spears was wrapped with a page from the New Testament, probably torn from the New Testament that belonged to one of the five missionaries that they had killed a year and a half before. Another page was from a scrapbook that Mrs. Tidmarsh had made to drop along with the gift drops to the Alcas. There was blood, of course, and I thought of the verse in the Psalms, A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. My daughter Valerie was only two years old. She had no idea what was going on. I remember that she put a basin on her head and said, Hat, Mama. It's strange how, in times of crisis, very small, seemingly trivial details stick in our minds. Then I remember sitting there beside the corpse of Honorio. It was wrapped in a blanket, and his mother was weeping, stroking the blanket with her hand, crying in the Quechua manner, singing a sort of a death wail, telling the history of Honorio's life. His canoe had been found. His wife was gone, apparently kidnapped. His dog was dead. Mancamo was talking to me very excitedly and pointing to my daughter Valerie, a long speech. She was trembling. There were tears in her eyes. She knew, of course, that Onodio had been speared by her own people. Was she telling us that they would do the same to us? We had no way of knowing. When the hunters did not return at sundown, the Quechua women began the death wail again. They will have been killed, they said. Then one of them turned to me and said, Manjangichu, senora? Are you afraid? Mana, I said. No. Candas apanangaulia, they said. You too, they will carry away. And I thought of those words again. I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. The page of my Bible had blown open to exactly those words. I didn't take this to mean that God was giving me a guarantee of physical safety. But I did take it to mean that God was going to work his purposes out in his own way. At the same time, I was feeling that I really had enough of the Alcas. Quite honestly, I wanted out. Donasco, one of the Quechua men, returned and told us that he had been out hunting and that six Alcas, apparently with a boy in the middle, had gone by. He was probably at too great a distance to see that what he thought was a boy was really Onorio's wife, just a slight young girl. The Quichuas began to argue, Why do you missionaries drop gifts to these people? You really should be dropping bombs. They're killers. They're murderers. They're going to kill us all. Can we stay here and be killed? Shall we leave? Where will we go? There was a lot of argument but in my heart there was peace. My destiny was in God's two hands. Finally, they decided that the entire village must be evacuated. And so we left. I took Mancamo and Mintaka and Valerie, and we went back to my station in Shandia. 
When Mankamo and Mintaka got into the airplane, I gestured to them to fasten their seat belts, and can you believe it? They fastened their seat belts. Very strange things were happening to them. Very strange things were happening to me, too. I had never been this way before. But it's a wonderful thing to follow a shepherd who's been over the trail. I'm only a sheep. I don't know where the pastures are, the paths of righteousness, even the valleys of the shadow. But I do know my shepherd, and I trust him. Gateway to Joy 121, an entrance to Alka Territory. The title of our second Gateway to Joy program, later on, Two Stone Age Women. But first we hear from author Barbara Riach. She'll talk about the Alka response to Elizabeth living among them. Well, she had no guarantee of how the Warani would respond, but she trusted God. She trusted his call on her life. And she trusted the power of the gospel. Well, the current day missionary told us that in time, the Warani did listen to Elizabeth. At first, they were simply in awe that the families of the men they had killed would come to them, not with swords to kill, but in peace. And then they listened as Elizabeth shared the gospel of Jesus' forgiveness and gift of a new life. In simple and relatable terms, Elizabeth told them, we have all committed great crimes against God. We all deserve to have our blood shed to pay for our wrongdoing. But God loved us so much, he sent his son Jesus to pay for our crime And Jesus paid for our crime against God with his blood. And now God forgives all who trust in Jesus. Well, God worked powerfully through this gospel message. And he saved many who had hated and murdered. And Jesus paid for our crime against God with his blood. And now God forgives all who trust in Jesus. Well, God worked powerfully through this gospel message, and he saved many who had hated and murdered. That was author Barbara Riach. Later, we'll hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard. How dangerous was it living in the jungle? Was it a scary or a fun childhood, spending that time in Ecuador? Hear about that later on. Right now, Two Stone Age Women is the title of our Gateway to Joy program. Why were people surprised what the Alcas seemed to be like? How successful was Elizabeth in trying to learn the Alca language? Was that important? Well, here it is, Gateway to Joy 122, Two Stone Age Women. In my last talk, I told you how in the providence of God, I was able to contact two Alka women, members of the tribe that had killed my husband and four other American missionaries in 1956. It had been my prayer that if God wanted me to do anything about the Alkas, that he would make that possible. Little imagining that it would ever happen or how it could possibly happen. 
These two women had come out voluntarily to Kichwa territory. I had been notified by two Kichwa men who led me to where they were. But then because of a killing that took place while we were there, when Alcas came out and killed one of the Kichwa men, the entire village was evacuated. And so I went back to my own station, working with the Kichwa Indians in another area of the jungle, a place called Shandia. And I took with me my daughter Valerie and Mintaka and Mankamo, the two Alka women. You can imagine the sensation that two Alka women would cause in a Kichwa village. I heard one of the Indian girls say, why, they're, they're just like us. They've got arms and legs. Um, do they eat, senora? Do they sleep? And then one boy said, why, they've only got two legs. I just counted them. He said, I thought they'd have four or five legs, but I just counted them. They've only got two. And then I don't know how many times people said to me, do they speak? Oh, they don't speak. They just make noises, don't they? Well, of course, a language that sounds like this, butu, I can understand why people thought it doesn't really sound like a language, it's just noises, but it was a language. Mintaka, Mankamo, Valerie, and I went to live not in the fancy house that Jim had built for us, because I didn't really think that Alka women would be comfortable in a cement-floored house with wooden walls and an aluminum roof. We went to live in the house of a man called Kua. He was a Quechua Indian. He had a fairly large house, and several of his children were friends of mine. They said, come and live with us if you want to. And I said, will you let Mintaka and Mankamo live in your house too? And they said, fine. And so we established ourselves. They added a small addition to the house where I could put my desk and my little stove and where Valerie could sleep, and we moved in. Mintaka and Mankamo began to participate in the work of the plantation and the general housework, as any Quechua woman would do. And I began the most important job, which was trying to learn the Alka language. I had a small tape recorder. This was back in the early days of tape recorders. It was a pretty crude one compared to the ones that you can buy nowadays. But it served the purpose, and I got Mintaka and Mankamo to talk into the microphone and then I sent the tapes to the United States to Rachel Saint. Rachel had been studying the Alka language with a young woman by the name of Dayuma. Dayuma had left the Alka tribe many years before, but had been living as a servant or a slave on a nearby hacienda. Rachel had contacted her there and was now on a visit to the States with Dayuma. So I sent these tapes of Mintaka and Mankamo's talking to Rachel with the hope that Rachel and Dayuma together would be able to transcribe what they were saying. I was dying to know what in the world these women were saying to me. They had no comprehension of the fact that I didn't understand their language. Even though it was very obvious to them that I didn't speak their language, somehow it didn't get through to them that I could not understand them. And so they talked a blue streak. I finally learned the word I don't understand, which is and you can be sure I used that phrase very often. But they didn't believe me. They thought I was pulling their leg when I said I don't understand. 
They worked, and they swam, and they bathed, and they helped in the house, and they played with Valerie, and they talked, and they talked. And every minute that I could possibly be there, I was there with my notebook and pen, trying to write down anything I heard them say. It's wonderful the way a baby learns a language. He doesn't have to write things down in notebooks. He remembers what he hears. He can repeat it, and he understands what it means. It is a mysterious and almost miraculous process. But unfortunately, when you get to be an adult, you don't have that ability. And so I went charging around with my notebook and pen, frantically trying to hear what they said and get it down on paper. One day, Mankama woke up with her jaw badly swollen. She was crying. I could see that she had a toothache. She was holding a glowing stick next to her cheek, the jungle substitute for a hot water bottle. And so we had to make a flight out to the dentist. That was an experience. Was she afraid? She was completely submissive to me when I said, follow me, and we went to the airstrip and got on the airplane. When we got off the plane, she followed me into the dentist office, sat down in the chair with the greatest meekness, and submitted to having her tooth pulled. It scared the life out of her and Mintaka when a truck came lurching and roaring down the road. That was the first time they'd ever seen that because in the station where we had been living, there was only an airstrip. There were no roads. And when Mintaka saw this truck lurching down the road, she grabbed Valerie and headed for the ditch, sure that we were all doomed. Then I think one of the things that got the most expressions of surprise out of them was the braying of a donkey nearby. They had never seen animals that were domesticated before, and yet even at that they were not really afraid. When they saw a man on horseback, I thought they would die laughing. That was just too much. They almost had hysterics. We went back to Shandia after the tooth had been taken care of, and I was doing my best to learn their language. I could say just a few words, a few phrases, say it again, what's he doing, what is this? And as a man began weaving a roof, then they gave me the phrase, the man is weaving the roof. Very, very gradually, very slowly, they began to catch on to what I was trying to do. One day, I showed them the basket in which the five men before they were killed had received a parrot, a live parrot, that had been given to them by the bucket drop method. When Nate was flying the plane, lowering a bucket on a line from the airplane, the alcas on the ground had actually grabbed the basket and had put in it a live parrot, which arrived safe and sound, complete with a half-eaten banana. When Mankamo saw the basket, she laughed and said to me, I made it. She gestured in such a way that I was able to understand that she was saying, I made it. So I wrote that down. Then there was a piece of string tied to the basket, and she said, Akawo made that. Then Mintaka came along and said, The parrot belonged to Minkai. Well, I didn't know Minkai, but I wrote down Minkai's name, thinking maybe someday I'll meet him. Then they told me, by gestures and by words, how a man named Nampa, thinking that perhaps he could get a ride, had tied himself to the cord that was lowered from the airplane. Fortunately, Nate had thought of such an eventuality and had arranged a brake cord so that if anything too heavy was tied to it, it would automatically break. 
And so Nampa was very disappointed he didn't get his ride through space when he tied himself to the cord. Then the time came when I took Mintaka and Mancamo to Guayaquil, the largest city in Ecuador, the port city. We took a bus. We went up into cold weather in the mountains, the Andes. We had provided them with wool clothing, which they didn't understand at all at the beginning, and then they began to realize the need for them. We took ferries and trains. I showed them the tall buildings in the marketplace. Nothing impressed them until I took them to the place where the bananas were stacked up for export. There were about three blocks worth of bananas stacked up, ready to go on the barges out to the ships that were waiting at the mouth of the river. They looked at me in absolute disbelief, and Mancamo said, who would cut all those bananas for just one day? Then someone had taken movie footage when the five men had had a friendly contact with the Alcas. This footage had been flown back to Arahuno before the men were killed, so I arranged to have the Alca women see that movie footage. This, I was convinced, would certainly blow their minds. No, there were no signs of amazement, but they did giggle when they saw themselves on the screen. They giggled when they saw the people that they knew. But would you believe Mintaka got bored before the film was over and left early? There's no fathoming the so-called primitive mind. Then, as we traveled high in the Andes, they kept giving me one word over and over again. I would point to snowcaps, rabbits, goats, sheep, trucks, and I kept getting the word kiimimba, kiimimba. So I wrote down kiimimba dutifully with snowcaps, rabbits, goats after it. Finally, my stupidity dawned on me. What they were saying to me was, who knows what it is. They'd never seen a snowcap or a rabbit or a goat or a sheep or a truck. My prayer one morning for a special sign of help came when Mintaka made plain to me that she was asking me to go back with them when they went home. I was able to understand that much. And I was able to say to her, will they spear me? And she said, Gikgadi, that's the name they had made up for me, Gikgadi, your husband was a man. They speared him because they were afraid. Gateway to Joy 122 to Stone Age Women. Well, as we come to the end of our time together, we have one more comment from Valerie Elliott Shepard. Have you ever wondered how dangerous it was for Valerie to spend some time there as a very young child living in the jungle? Uh, how would she describe those, those days in Ecuador? And when we were in the jungle, we were, of course, among very dangerous creatures. The Lord allowed, uh, the Lord protected us so that no, no snake ever bit us and no poisonous spider ever gave us any illness. Uh, the worst thing that happened to me was bumblebee stings one day when we lived among the Alcas, but I just remember having a ball playing in the river. We had a baby otter for a while, which was a joy. Um, building fires with the Alka kids. Of course, my grandparents were, weren't too thrilled about that because of the safety of it. And we had little knives that we could 
Quiddle sticks with and the Lord protected me all the way. But one particular story, and I know some children are listening, one particular story about God's protection is when I went to bed in the little hut without any walls and I was on a bamboo bed and my mother was in a hammock right next to me. And she prayed, we sang, Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me, bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me, keep me safe till morning light. There are three lovely verses to that, and I won't quote them all, but she would sing me many wonderful hymns, but I remember especially that one. And one night as she woke up to stir the logs, to, to push the logs together to keep the fire going that we had to have because it was quite cool at nighttime, she looked over at my bed as she always did, and there was a, a black circle on my stomach. I was underneath a blanket. And so she touched it with the stick that she touched the that she pushed the logs together with. And it was a black snake. And it just smoothly curled, uncurled itself and slid off into the jungle. And of course it could have been very poisonous. She didn't tell me at the time. I was probably too young to even understand, but the Lord protected us amazingly. And uh, I'll never forget seeing an ocelot being caged uh, by the Alcas. They had set a trap for it. And in the middle of the night, they woke us up to come and look at the ocelot in the trap. And I remember thinking how fierce and angry it looked. And the Lord protected us from those night creatures, which were panthers and ocelots. And so anyway, there were anacondas in the river. We never saw them that I remember. So I'm just so very grateful for how God um, protected my mother and me and very clearly led her to live with the Alka Indians along with Rachel Saint. And I'm so thankful that she never showed any fear to me. If I had seen her alarm and fear and worry all the time, that would have made me alarmed and fearful and worried all the time. And I never saw it. So I'm very, very grateful for that example she set that Maybe inside she might have been fearful at times, but she never let me know it. And in that bedtime routine, there was this confidence and security that the Lord was watching over us. As uh, mealtime was the main thing I had to come to, I had to obey her about. Uh, of course, I was always hungry. And uh, we had sometimes jungle trips with the Alcas where we didn't have anything to eat for most of the day. We might've had a little cup of chicha, which is chewed up manioc, cooked and then chewed up by the Alka women. And that gave us some starch for the day, but we went one time all day long. And when we arrived where we were supposed to be, my mother looked at me and said, are you hungry? And I said, yes. And she said, what would you like to eat? And I said, rice and egg. So rice and egg was a common food if we had eggs, but Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, the Lord used her to teach me to look at things practically and to do things as efficiently as I could, and yet I still struggle in my own lack of efficiency. Um, she taught me that obedience was very important and that I was never to talk back to her, which I don't remember doing, but she taught me that it mattered what we said and what we did. Uh, we were to bring glory to God in all of our behavior. Valerie Elliott Shepherd. Well, our thanks to you as uh, once again we're coming to the end of our time together. Thanks for letting us come and join you right where you are today. 
On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Elizabeth with an S, elizabethelliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.